This is Startup to Shutdown, the podcast with Rhett and Paul, and we're on a journey to meet the aviators behind the stories, adventure together through the vast, exciting world of aviation, and to inspire and learn from one another as we fly. Good day to our aviation community out there. It's great to be back with you again. Today we're venturing a little further afield to chat with an inspiring young lady from down under Melbourne, Australia, who truly knows what it means to sweep the sheds. Her grit and resilience has helped her achieve her goals as she paints a vivid picture of her journey to where she is today, flying the aircraft of her dreams. What is a good story without a little bit of espionage woven into it? Join us today as we have a conversation with Caitlin Costa. Well, Caitlin, thanks so much for joining us all the way from down under there. We, uh, Paul and I have been really excited to, to have this conversation with you and thanks again so much for coming on board. No problem. It's uh, very exciting to join you guys in this new venture that you're doing and being involved. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks. I think we've got so much to cover today. So what we'd like to do is just start off with some rapid fire questions, uh, just to give the audience a bit of an idea of who it is we're talking to today. Okay, no problem. Go ahead. So the first one is, Caitlin, how many years have you been flying now and what's your total time at? Look, all in all, uh, 10 to 11 years I've been flying, but it's been on and off a little bit in between. At the moment, I've got just over 2,500 hours, which in the scheme of things isn't a lot, but you'll, you'll find out why uh, I've had some pauses <laughs> shortly. I think your yeah, life gets in the way for all of us and we all have those sort of intermissions. Um, and that's amazing, 2,500 hours with the amount that you've done. That's, that is quite surprising, but we'll, we'll touch on that a little later. Um, the next question is, what is your favorite aircraft that you've flown? Well, it's got to be my current aircraft, um, the Global Express, of course. Yeah, that's amazing. And how long have you been flying that, Caitlin? Um, I've been flying it, good question, um, just over two years. Brilliant. And of those 2,500 hours, how many are on the Global? Uh, probably 700 or so. Fantastic, yeah. yeah. Okay, number three, your best and worst subjects that you've, that you've had to write. Um, I actually wrote all my ATPL theory first. I actually skipped CPL. Now looking back in South Africa, I can't remember all the subjects, but they would have, my favourite would have been sort of the aircraft technical and general um, exams. And the same also in Australia with the exams over here, ATPL exams, that would be my favourite the least favourite were probably flight planning, navigation. In Australia, the HPL flight planning is particularly hard, um, but we got through it in the end and thankfully it's over. <laughs> yeah, we all have that sigh of relief at the end of those <laughs> exams and mine's also exactly the same. That flight planning was absolute nightmare for me. I don't know about you, Paul. Oh, well, I mean, I was just glad that I um, did my ATPLs straight after I'd finished my comms, so it was still fresh in my mind because... I've got a couple of friends trying to get through their HPLs now and they left it for a long time. They've had to restudy everything and the standard has gone up. So I'm just very relieved that I did mine immediately after my yeah. comp. Absolutely. That's yeah, definitely, definitely a, smart a smart thing to do. Okay. And next one, any aviation related books for us there, Kayla? Um, Look, I know Paul's already mentioned Jonathan Livingston Seagull, um, which actually was a, a book that my dad had in his, in his drawer and it was in tatters. And I remember picking it up and that was the first sort of book I knew I had to read. But we won't copy Paul there, so we'll say um, a little bit different, not, not exactly a novel, but more the theory side, which I, I tend to gravitate to, and it's Ace the Technical Pilot Interview. Nice, that yeah, book I've got one of those on the shelf. really helped me sort of after my CPL and trying to get my first job and actually understanding things in a little bit more depth. So that was a good one. Oh, yeah. That's a great handbook. Eh? A very valuable book, and, and I'm glad that you brought it up, even though it is a technical book, because uh, it's certainly one that every pilot should have on their shelves. Uh, and even if they're not going to go airline, it's still just an incredibly valuable book. I, I studied that while I was sitting in Zambia on contract for a couple of months, and uh, it was really a good time killer. Absolutely. And last one there for the rapid fire, Caitlin, if you could go back in time, what advice would you give your younger self? Look, um, a few things. One, do not scud run. Great <laughs> <laughs> advice, yeah. Yeah, I, I've done it. I was stupid enough to do it. Looking back now, I don't know, you know, that 
just not smart moves. Um, so if anyone's starting to fly, I would say do not do that. Um, also, don't compare yourself uh, to others and their journey. And maybe it's not always greener on the other side. So, for example, if you think you're in a position that uh, you would like to improve or you can, you, know, you look over and you see the greener grass on the other side of the fence and it's not always the case, you're just going to go from one problem to the next. So it's better to start learning how to deal with the problems that are ahead of you. And then probably lastly, uh, I wish I started learning about people skills and emotional intelligence a bit earlier. I find I'm looking at that more and more these days and I wish I had those skills when I was younger. Do you think that plays a bit more of a role in the corporate uh, world where you're sort of interacting with a few more people, you know, the, the clients and stuff as well? Absolutely. With emotional intelligence or just generally? Absolutely. It, it's probably more so in corporate because you're dealing with, with smaller teams. But even in airlines, you know, you're flying with different captains or um, different cabin crew, all of that, and you need to be able to get on with other people and you need to have those skills to speak up. Fantastic. Yeah, no, those are three, three great points there. I think the most valuable thing you've just said there is not to compare your journey with others. And we all take different routes. And we'll learn from Caitlin that it's uh, not a terrible thing to go back to something where you found you enjoyed something else more than another route. But we'll, we'll get to that, Caitlin. It's uh, really cool to have you here and uh, really good to be chatting to you again. No, you guys are doing great. So I've just touched on it, but where did your aviation journey begin? Uh, what inspired you to fly and where did it all start? Well, I have lived on a few continents in my life, but at this stage, uh, I think I was between 8 to 14 and I lived in the UK with my family and Dad used to take me to air shows and I would go to places like Duxford and Mildenhall and watch the Spitfires. And there was a female pilot by the name of Carolyn Grace who used to fly a Spitfire there. And that just stuck in my memory and I loved watching her fly and, and in particular the Spitfires. And, you know, I didn't really think too much of it then, um, meaning I didn't think it would be my career at that time, but it would uh, be memories that would be the foundation of the rest of my uh, flying career, I guess. So, yeah, that's where it sort of all started. And when I was looking at finishing school and thinking, where, I, where do I go now? I knew I wasn't going to get an office job. I was living in George in South Africa at this time and um, all the aircraft would fly over our farm that we had on in their circuit pattern. And I used to look up and they were just like a constant niggling reminder over my head. <laughs> and I, I ended up... Uh, going to the fly schools in, in George and starting my PPL at first just to see how that would go. Never looked back. And when you started that PPL, uh, did you have any intention of getting to uh, airline or did you know where you were going or was it really just a case of testing it out? To be honest, I don't think I knew exactly where I was going and I would say that airlines maybe weren't my main focus. I was probably looking more towards the private jets at that stage or actually the fast jets but that would have taken probably a different, different uh, avenue if I was really going to push for that, you know, either the military or those kind of things. So I kind of was going to see how it would go. In two and a half thousand hours, You've probably had one of the most dynamic careers that I know of because two and a half thousand hours, even you said in, in 10, 11 years, doesn't seem like that much. But what you've done in that two and a half thousand hours is quite phenomenal. I, I wonder if you could elaborate on your career path a little bit. Yeah, sure. So, look, obviously, after my CPL, I, I did all my CPL training um, in Joburg. Um, initial PPL training in George and when I finished I joined my family over in Melbourne Australia that's where we all moved just around that time and then it was time for me to start to find a job um, which was actually harder than I expected really and um, I think it was just a really bad time in the aviation um, sector anyway and I was only able to find almost casual work uh, that was on and off. And, of course, I took every bit that I could get, some of it uh, charters for, you know, golf charters across uh, Bass Strait to Tasmania. Some of it was freight. 
And then skydiving also I used to do on the weekends, not earning any money for it, but at least getting some hours. And I had to do a bit of other work in in the um, industry just to try and keep my foot in the door and also to um, keep current the best I could. And, yeah, so, you know, washing airplanes, um, running some operations work, and um, I eventually managed to get some paying jobs. And that was probably in the last four or five years of my career that I was actually getting any decent flying and full-time jobs. Now, before you go on and elaborate what those paying jobs uh, have been, um, I'm just keen to know where the value lies uh, in the, in those jobs, those runaround jobs that you did. Yeah, look, um, I definitely learned, okay, so for example, I would, um, I ran an FBO, which is a ground handling um, company for visiting private jets or um, dignitaries, uh, so basically non-scheduled airlines. And I, I learned about the industry and I learned how to appreciate everyone's role within the industry. So from the aircraft cleaners to the refuelers, um, the customs, you know, border force staff, um, everyone involved that makes aviation possible. And it helps me now because when I see those people, I can thank them and, you know, try and help make their jobs easier or make them feel appreciated for what they're doing and what their journey is and maybe try and uplift them too. Yeah, a bit more relatable. Absolutely. Do you agree then that a stepping stone in operations is actually uh, very valuable for the future of your career, even as a pilot? Absolutely. And it makes it um, all worthwhile for you as well. You know, you know you've worked really hard to get where you are, so you appreciate where you are now. And um, as well as you're learning about all of the other pieces of the puzzle within aviation so especially in corporate I'm doing flight planning I'm arranging some maintenance items to be looked at we're arranging aircraft cleaning we're getting catering done Um, I'm helping the flight attendants and I've got so many other skills that I ordinarily wouldn't have if I just went straight into the airlines absolutely I think it's so important for the younger guys especially when they working their way into the industry you know like you speak of paying your dues and in a lot of ways People just don't want to do that these days. And, or if they do do it, they just want to rush through it or get through it as soon as possible without realizing how beneficial it is in that stage of your career. You know, the things you do pick up on, the appreciation you gain and, and just the, the soft skills you, you develop. Yes, and I think uh, just uh, it must be said right now is, is that uh, there are always going to be stepping stones. Uh, guys reckon they're going to walk straight from uh, flight school into an airline job, which does happen these days. There are integrated comms and there are opportunities like that. But for those of you who listen to Walter's interview, that you'll hear an airline pilot with 30,000 hours saying that he doesn't advocate that kind of path, that it's, it's really missing out on so many exciting chapters. And if anyone knows hard work, I know Caitlin knows hard work. Caitlin, do you want to just uh, outline a little bit of the, the hard work that it was for you to get your calm. It was not a walk in the park for you. Look, I mean, I, I don't think it's a walk in the park for anyone. Um, obviously, there's financial pressures. For me, I didn't have all of the money up front to pay for a comm. So, you know, you try and think outside the box and you sort of see where can I plug myself into, um, for example, helping with a flight school in ops or a charter company or seeing if there's someone who has a plane that you that would be beneficial for your um, hour building and seeing how you can get that plane for, for um, cheaper rates if you give them assistance with the business. And you just study hard, you, sh- you show initiative, you um, plug in with other people and mentors and, and people are willing to help you. I'm so glad you ended on that uh, because I know there are a lot of people that you're grateful to in your career that did help you along. And aviation is full of characters like that. Uh, Just to encourage those trying to make it through their comm, there are people out there who want to help you and it's just having the right attitude. And if you've got the right attitude, there are willing people out there wanting to help. 
Absolutely. And like Caitlin says, it's also putting yourself out there and, you know, exposing yourself to those situations and to those people and to those opportunities, really. You can't just, you know, sit at home and expect it to happen. You've got to really like you've done, Caitlin, go out there and get it. I think it's um, very important to get mentors throughout the journey and you'll collect them as you as you go. I mean, some of the earlier mentors, Rich, your mum was um, amazing to to me at the early stages and encouraged me and a great support. Um, and then even when I was studying in Joburg, Paul, you you yourself were a great mentor for me as well. You were level-headed and tried to, <laughs> you know, steer me in the right direction um, as well. And I continue, even now, I'm, I'm continually adding to that uh, little bucket of mentors that I have and um, people who support and give me advice along the way. And it's a two-way street. I think uh, you were receptive to that kind of mentorship and you weren't arrogant and you uh, were teachable. And that's the, the most important thing. Um, I think you set yourself up for success just with that, that attitude. You are a South African who has moved to Australia. Any comparison between the aviation sectors in South Africa and Australia? And you have alluded to paying your dues in Australia to, to get into the industry. But any advice for people who do want to move around the, the world and explore different countries and different aviation bases? Yeah, I found it quite hard moving over to Australia. You know, I was finishing my com in South Africa and my friends were getting King Air endorsements and everything was exciting and they were going to get onto sort of turbine engine aircraft and I got here and they were like, well, you need 4,000 hours to fly the King Air. And I thought, okay, well, that's not quite the reality that I was expecting. So it was back on a 206 or a um, 172 doing scenic flights. You know, that's kind of how it was when I came here and I kind of got knocked back a little bit. I thought, jeepers, what's, what's happened here? And, you know, you, you just try your best. And, and if that's what you have to do, that's what you have to do. And you just try and make some friends within the industry in the new country that you're going to and try and ask them what what is the norm what is the um expectations you know get a bit more grounded with your expectations and how to deal with that there and what the locals are doing you know for example I said in Australia they they go up north and try and find some scenic flight work so you know plug into the local guys and see how they can help you and what advice they have okay so Australia is obviously a popular option especially for South Africans um, I also spent a year there but I didn't completely convert my license like you did i just got the validation for a year and uh, also i was doing scenic flights around there but do you think there's any sort of way that that transition for you could have been made easier from converting from caa to casa or anything you would have done in hindsight not really i mean you have to go through the the hoops you have to do the conversion exams i think there were about three exams that i had to do air law um, I think instrument rating and, and human factors or something. And then you have to do a flight test. And the problem is that I was nervous. I had no no idea what a ATC was like over here. Um, all the procedures, they were slightly different. So I had to fork out some money and try and get some lessons and, and training before I could actually pass a CPL test um, and be confident to do that. So, you know, if you think, okay, well, that's what I have to do and you put a plan together, go and find a flight school or whatever you can to, to support you through that process and get it done as soon as possible. Have there been any major glitches in your training or any, any places where you plateaued or you found it particularly difficult and how did you overcome that? Well, I wouldn't say necessarily in my training but in my um, career, I would say, um, I was flying the skydivers and I thought, well, this isn't exactly what I want to be doing. It's not what I imagined my career to be. And um, so, you know, you lose a bit of motivation. You get so many knockbacks from companies that you're trying to apply for. So, you know, that was a bit of a hard time in my life, knowing what the right career move was as well, because everyone was going into the airlines, doing all the Cathay Pacific interviews, and which I actually joined for a little bit. But I just thought, you know what, that's not me. I can't see myself going and living in Hong Kong. Um, I've just moved to Australia. I need to give this a go and 
be where I want to be. Some of the best advice I heard from a captain was find a job that allows you to be in the place that you want to be living and gives you the lifestyle that you want to, you know, either spend time with your family or um, whatever hobbies and interests you have because at the end of the job is just a job as well. So on that uh, note, you constantly find yourself going back to corporate and that's where you find yourself now. What is it about corporate that kept calling you back? What is it that you love about corporate? Well, it took me a while to get into corporate, but in the big scheme of things, I mean, I got my first jet endorsement with 700 hours total time. I started flying a Learjet for a small charter company. Um, It didn't fly a lot, but it was a a foot in the door. And while I wasn't flying, I was either washing the cars or um, washing the airplanes, putting oil up uh, into a DC-3, doing a bit of flight attending, Um, (laughs) you know, all all of the stuff that makes me who I am today. Um, But that was the best time. And I actually really look fondly back at those memories um, as hard as it was at the time. But with corporate, I find that there's a lot of pride that you can have in that role and in that um, industry because you're looking after an aircraft possibly and you're responsible for everything for that aircraft, the um, way it's presented, the cleanliness, making sure the maintenance items are looked after and you feel like it's your baby a little bit. It's a a great feeling to know that... um, you can be a part of that and and really be a part of everything within the company to get that aircraft flying. And what is it about flying now that you're flying a global? What is it about flying that keeps it exciting for you? I think um, well, a little bit of the technology. I mean, this aircraft that I'm flying is just amazing. It's, you know, the service ceiling is 51,000 feet the um, max speed is 0.89 mark. We're cruising high above all the weather and it's just a beautiful, beautiful aeroplane to be flying. And I just love it. I Absolutely, any time I'm flying it and you come into land, it's just an amazing feeling to be in control of something like this. Having control of an aircraft like that is obviously something every pilot uh seeks um, to do um what what other aircraft have you flown that you really really loved well the Learjet was definitely something special for me because that was my first jet and really I mean it doesn't have the technology that you know I might find in the global these days so everything was sort of mental maths um physically flying it you know the autopilot might have been a bit dodgy and you you're flying a fast aircraft um, and you're having to think on your feet quite a bit. And that aircraft kept me honest and, and taught me a lot. And so it's a very special aircraft for me. And from the Learjet, uh, I then went on to the Embraer 145 as well for a bit of airline flying, uh, just a domestic carrier here in Australia, which was a different experience altogether. Also amazing aircraft, but that I was more exposed to procedures and um which was so beneficial for me as well. Like as much as I say I love corporate and that's where my heart is, I'm so grateful that I was able to experience some airline flying too because that taught me the other aspects that I might lack in the corporate um, experience as well. And like I said, the SOPs, the multi-crew, and I don't regret any of the uh, choices I've made or the experiences I've had. They've all led to me being able to appreciate where I am today. And that choice to uh, move from airline, the 145 to corporate, what, what was it that uh, really bedded it down for you in, at the end? Well, to be honest, I, I knew I was only going to fly for this airline for a little while because I needed some decent hours on something at least that was a significant aircraft type. And actually enjoyed the process too. I mean, I could have stayed there longer, but unfortunately the airline I was flying for um, got into a bit of financial trouble. And so things were not looking so good for them. A lot of pilots were thinking of leaving and 
it just so happened that at this time I was then contacted by my now boss um, all those years back in the FBO. I remember he came in one night on New Year's Eve and no one else wanted to work but I had to work and he wanted to leave again early New Year's morning. So, of course, I thought, well, I'm not going to go home and come back, you know, a couple hours later. So I slept on the couch and I think he remembered that and he remembered my uh, dedication back then and he called me and he said, do you want to come and fly the global for us? We're about to hire someone. So he basically called me up and said, come over. Again, brilliant. Just an illustration of those networks and the attitude towards people uh, that can really, really come back in a positive way in the future. Yeah, I obviously didn't tell him at the time that I was probably about to be made redundant anyway, <laughs> and it was perfect timing. So I was just uh, like, oh, semantics. yeah, I'll think about that. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, these things happen for a reason at the right time as well. Exactly. You know, that's what's great about your story, Caitlin, is, you know, you spoke about you had the tough times in the early days and especially it relates now to obviously the corona and the pandemic going on you know we all go through the tough times but how your stories come full circle you know just that persistence and perseverance from your side and how that's paid off to finally you know having the the job of your dreams uh, just hearing you speak about the global and I can see you getting excited yeah. about it and that's just so it, awesome to see. It really is it really is my job and my dreams and I think you know what the thing is yeah you say persistence but I think it's also what you focus your mind on um, you know without sounding cheesy it's sort of what you what you think about evolves and, and becomes and the more you think about it the more you're um, encouraging yourself to think about it the more it actually appears and yeah. um, I think in a lot of cases, that has happened for me. Absolutely. That's cool. Power of the mind. Yeah. And uh, just, uh, we, we do, we drive our um, destination essentially by what we think about and, and what we want to get out of it. And just in, in the corporate world, uh, it obviously is suiting you. I can see you're happy, you love the airplane. What is the schedule like? Can you give us some idea of how often you fly, how, how often you're away? You're a married lady and uh, your husband obviously has to be quite tolerant of nights away. <laughs> yeah. Um, look, whether you can see it as a downside or not, I, I don't. I think it suits me quite well at the moment. Um, we don't really have a, a schedule at all. And um, Obviously, this could be very different with even within the corporate world um, because what I might experience might be different to what another corporate guy down the road will be experiencing. But for me, you know, no real schedule. We're a small team with my particular company. We're, I'm one of three pilots. And really, it's just a case of being on standby at all times um, unless you're on annual leave. Um, and even then, you know, that you could be pulled off that. <laughs> um, I actually find that I've never spent this much time at home, really, so it's actually quite quite good. And I might be away for a month or so every now and then, but it's fine because, you know, I know that's part of the job and then I come home and then I can be home, you know, a week and not fly and, and still enjoy every part of it. So the downside might be that I might get a friend who says, oh, it's my birthday on the 16th, uh, we're having something, can you come? And I'll be like, I'll try. <laughs> I can't tell you if I'm going to be here or not. Um, and that's just the way it goes, unfortunately. That might take its toll on me at some point down the road, but at the moment it suits me just fine. And, yeah, you mentioned family and in particular my husband being tolerant of that. Look, he, he works in aviation himself. Um, he's an air traffic controller based out of Melbourne, and he works night shifts and, um, you know, irregular hours too. So um, we just make it work and I'm understanding of his situations and his schedule and, and he is of mine. So the nice thing is that we've, we're both in the industry, so at least we have something to talk about and understand each other's jobs without it being too close. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it's good. No, that's great insight. And I think uh, what comes out of that is really that uh, one of the character traits in aviation is adaptability. I think that's a great illustration. And also what you've said is for now. And I think uh, just in light of my career and the way it's gone, charter was the best for me while I was in it. And I enjoyed it. And I honestly thought I was going to be in it for the rest of my life until I had children. 
And uh, it did change the dynamic of charter. And my priorities shifted, as I said in a previous uh, episode. And airline now is definitely what suits me best. Um, so it really is a case of timing and where we find ourselves in our lives. Hello, everybody. We've managed to set up a Patreon page where you'll find more quality content and exclusive offers, like this week's 20% coupon on the last electronic logbook you'll ever need. XL Pilot Logbook is what I've been using for almost a year now, and to tell you the truth, I haven't looked back since. First off, it's super simple to get started. Just upload your latest summary and you're good to go. No need to spend days on end getting thousands of entries in. Once you're all set up, you'll never have to worry about trying to solve a logbook summary again. It updates itself after every entry, and the entire workbook is customized to your local aviation authority's requirements. Stay up to date on flight and duty times, recency, and everything else you could possibly need. Compatible with all devices and easily accessible when you upload it to the cloud. Make the once-off purchase fee and you're set for life. No recurring subscription fees. So use the code STARTUP2020 for your 20% discount and get started today. Now let's get back to the show. Down in Australia, I'm not sure how severely uh, COVID-19 has affected you guys. Has it, has it affected the industry in, in general and has it affected you personally? Absolutely. The airlines have taken a massive knock, especially um, Australian airlines, as they have all over the world. Look, for me, uh, being in corporate has actually initially been of benefit um, when everything was, when the world was going a bit nuts. We were busier than we expected to be and we were stationed out uh, in the northern part of Australia for a while doing some runs backwards and forwards around Asia and uh, that area, people wanting to get out of the country or, you know, back to wherever they came from and the panic hit and people thought, oh, I've got to grab a private jet. Um, So we were busy but the thing is obviously being busy out there and then, you know, you switch on the news and borders are shutting and even the state borders internally inside Australia were closing and you kind of think if I'm staying here, am I going to be able to get home um, when am you know when am I going to get home? And yeah, you kind of think, oh, this is probably not the best situation to be in, especially if you're flying across uh, to a couple of countries. And what if the aircraft has any maintenance issues? Am I going to be stuck somewhere I don't want to be? We obviously had to very quickly adapt and um, look into PPE um, requirements. Constantly looking at each country's updates and um, things like that and we we ended up actually flying a couple repatriation flights for a couple of the countries and uh, also had a couple COVID positive passengers on our on our aircraft um, which made it interesting and you know we flew around with a nurse and there was a lot of unknown and a bit of panic you know when we finished that flight we thought oh can we can we even go home you know what what is what's the consequences here but it all worked out well and, you know, we were as prepared as we could be. Yeah, and then it all sort of died down a little bit once all the countries were kind of all solidly closed and we just thought, okay, well, now's a bit of time to take some annual leave. So we took about two weeks annual leave and um, but we're back at it now. Brilliant. I've been reading a couple of articles recently, one by the CEO of uh, VistaJet um, based in Malta saying that uh, corporate have been the most resilient, uh, without a doubt, during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And, in fact, that opportunity for corporate is probably the best on the other side because a lot more people who have the money will be flying privately where Mm -hmm. airlines aren't crossing borders or uh, people just feel it's a bit of a risk to fly airline. It's It's a bit scary and sad, you know, you're sitting here and um, at least feeling a bit more safe knowing we've got a job, whereas some of or a lot of my friends flying in the airlines are all sitting on the ground not knowing whether they're going to go back or when they're going to go back. And some of these airlines here in Australia are even suffering financially and, and might not even make it through. So we've just got to support each other, I guess, through this. Exactly what you've just said. It's uh, been amazing to see on social media, across countries, across borders, how supportive air crew have been of one another. 
and, and quite empathetic uh, where crew have lost their jobs and have been with an airline for five years and are now without a job. Uh, so it's really good to have seen that in the, as an aviation community. Yes, that's good. Caitlin, you mentioned earlier on um, about cutting your teeth in the FBO. How did you get into the FBO in the first place? As I mentioned earlier, I was working for a, a smaller company, you know, washing all the airplanes and being a flight attendant and getting the occasional flight in a Learjet. And there was a neighboring company who operated Learjet 35s for Medibac. And um, I thought that would be a great experience for me. So I started off helping around at the FBO and I, I ended up working full time there and ended up being the manager of the FBO. Now, just my luck, uh, I was waiting to get some more time on the Learjets with them and they decided to sell all of their Learjet 35s and upgrade to Learjet 45s. So I was stuck in the FBO for a while. Um, not saying that that was a bad thing because looking back, I learned so much from that experience, but it was just a bit of a setback and I couldn't build the hours that I had hoped for. Um, I was I was flying the Learjet still um, casually on the side for a couple of operators, but other than that, the the uh, FBO was my full time job, and it was a twenty four seven job. Like I I was running into the ground with that job, but again, great experience. Um, you know, I I got to deal with handling seven four sevens, C seventeens, C one thirties, even F twenty twos. Uh, the US Air Force um, and uh, Air Force Two came for a visit and that was a whole month of uh, dealing with the uh, Secret Service and uh, White House and all of those things for a while and that was just amazing experience um, that I'll never forget. And in a way, I kind of thought, well, that's even an exciting career itself, to be honest. (laughs) And I think uh, one thing did lead to the other. I think we've seen that succession of how one relationship uh, benefited you um, in the future. We mentioned experiences that you could write a book about. What is the one adventure in your aviation career that comes to mind uh, that is most memorable? Look, I have a lot. um, And there's one in particular that uh, took me eight months. (laughs) I, at the time I was doing some skydive flying, um, I came across an opportunity, a business opportunity actually, to travel to Nicaragua in Central America and attempt to start a skydiving company over there. It was an adventure that I couldn't say no to and I knew that, you know, I sort of weighed up the pros and cons and the risks and at the end of the day I knew if it didn't work out I could always come back. We went over there to Nicaragua, we set up a company, we imported a an aircraft, a Cessna 206 from Canada, and we had it um, imported into Nicaragua. Um, unfortunately for me uh, and us, it, it didn't quite work out. It was a lot harder than we had imagined. I mean, I, going there, I sort of thought, oh, well, I've, I've been brought up in South Africa. I've seen corruption, you know. Um, and then the reality of it there was just overwhelming. And... Although it was a really great experience, it was a very tough experience on me emotionally and uh, physically. And, you know, we ended up trying to negotiate and fight with authorities over there just to get our aircraft that we imported out of customs. The journey took us, <laughs> took a toll on us and we decided actually to move out of there and fly the aircraft to the States, have a breather and reassess the whole situation. So we, we notified the Nicaraguans that we were now going to uh, no longer import the aircraft through customs uh, into the country and we were going to fly it back to the US. Of course, they weren't too happy about this and uh, it took us about two days of camping at the airport um, and persistently telling them we need to get access to our aircraft, which we hadn't seen since it arrived for two months. And I don't know how we did it, um, but we managed to get to the aircraft finally. I had uh, armed guards standing around me um, trying to, you know, pull their weight over me, I guess, in some, some way. And we managed to get in the aircraft with a quick pre-flight. Um, I don't even know how I had the courage to do it all, but 
we got in the aircraft and uh, took off. And as we were taxiing to the end of the runway, we saw a whole row of other aircraft that were just sitting in long grass, which obviously maybe other people had landed there before and had the same issues and maybe given up. Um, no and it was, it was a little bit sad to see, really. And we kind of, in a way, were like, wow, how, how on earth did we manage to get out of this situation? And it wasn't over. And even when we were airborne, we were like, we've just got to cross that border. So we crossed over into Mexico, um, landed into Mexico, did a couple hops in Mexico. In Mexico, we realized that uh, I think they must have tampered with some of the fuel lines in the aircraft. And we had a fuel leak on the one side. It was a 206, so obviously you have fuel from either wing to select from. And so we hopped our way to the next location and had to uh, plead with the Mexicans to uh, let us take off with this fuel issue and promise them that we'll fix it in the next uh, airport in the States. Um, And, of course, the uh, business partner I was with, with at the time wasn't a pilot and we only found out the day before that uh, all of this time, by the way, I've never flown that side of the world and have no idea what I was doing. Um, he, he couldn't land into the US on a private plane unless he was either crew or had a special visa. So <laughs> I had better. to uh, fly him to a, an airport that was right on the border between Texas and Mexico, drop him off. He caught a taxi to cross the border to meet me at McAllen Airport in Texas and I had to hop the plane over myself into America. And it just was <laughs> the most weird feeling and I was probably petrified at the time because, you know, here I am, a South African um, with an Australian passport flying a Canadian-registered aircraft from Nicaragua into the US with parachutes and aircraft parts in the back. And I thought they obviously kept this plane for two months. I don't know what they've done with it. They've tampered with the fuel. Maybe they've put drugs in it. Who knows? How am I uh, going to get myself out of this? <laughs> red um, flags. <laughs> absolutely. Lots of red flags. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, we, But we made it into McAllen Airport in Texas and um, somehow hopped over there, had a few things looked at um, over the aircraft and then continued our journey up through to final destination Boulder, Colorado. Um, where we reassessed our situation <laughs> and uh, decided to take a bit of a break and a bit of tour of the US. Um, and I don't know how I got through all of that, but, yeah, at the moment um, that aircraft that we, we ferried over there while we were um, touring the US just as a holiday, we went through the Grand Canyon and we kind of thought, hey, we've got a skydiving company and all the gear why is there not a skydiving company at the Grand Canyon? So we started looking into that. And at the time, we sort of assessing everything. I thought, you know what, is this really what I want to be doing? And now the investment money was a lot higher than we had initially planned. And I just thought, I think um, I've, I've had my fun here. I think I need to go back to Australia. Um, my business partner continued and he now successfully operates Skyd of the Grand Canyon with that very airplane. <laughs> wow. What a story. Good grief. There really is a, a, a book in that story there. Um, and particularly, I'm so glad it ends like that with him running a successful company. Absolutely, yeah. And he taught me a lot as well about persistence and, um, you know, never giving up and not accepting no as an answer. And let me tell you, you've got a huge amount of courage um, to to have uh, done that, not knowing, as you said, what's happened to the aeroplane in the interim, crossing uh, borders, because I'm I'm not going to go into it. It's another story. But uh, I left an aircraft in the Camorras uh, for that very reason. We could not get it out. And you mentioned how sad it was seeing that aircraft in the those aircraft in the grass that had been left behind. Um, I took off in a commercial flight uh, on an Air Kenya um, flight from Camorras and looked out of the window down at our Jetstream 41 that is still there to this day. And also, um, we could not even gain access to the airport, let alone the aircraft. Uh, Every time we were there, we were surrounded by military. 
And we had a very, very small window where we maybe could have got the aircraft out. And it was just pure corruption. It was people who had too much power, um, who were able to manipulate the system. And there's no good reason for them to have kept that aircraft. They've done nothing with it. It's, yeah, it's you don't sitting even on know the what apron. The, what the benefit of, of them doing that is. That's it. No, Especially if it's just it's, standing there. Yeah. Look, they, they had ulterior motives, but they, they obviously didn't realize at the time how difficult it would be to put that aircraft into operation on their own. And uh, it's just so sad. It was a, a beautiful Jetstream 41 with very low hours. And just due to one man's greed and uh, corruption and his influence in the government, we took it there and we operated for about a week and uh, we were meant to take it back and they just wouldn't let us leave. Yeah. So, you know, and the second the aircraft touched down there, um, you know, they came and said, okay, thanks very much. Your aircraft now belongs to the military. And uh, we were like, uh, no, it's not. <laughs> and we had to fight them for it. And it was, it was really hard. Um, I probably won't be allowed back in the country because of all that we'll see. <laughs> And they just want they just want the aircraft. They don't want a bribe, or you don't even know. It's just... uh, no, they 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 would have wanted um, bribes in succession. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, well, it certainly sounds like you had some higher power and some angels uh, helping you along on that route because uh, you had a couple of obstacles to overcome. Some um, some so... life experiences for sure. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Well, that's a cool story, Caitlin. And now, I mean, you know what makes it even cooler uh, is really that here is a young lady in aviation crossing borders, fighting with military, flying uh, this 206 where she's the only one that's able to. Um, what has your experience been being a female in aviation in a male-dominated industry? Look, I mean, it's had its challenges and uh, disadvantages and advantages too, I guess. I've, I have enjoyed it. Um, it's made me stronger, I think, because, you know, for example, I, I just got my CPL and I just did a couple charter flights on a Seneca actually before I moved over to Australia. And my very, very first charter flight with paying passengers, they arrived at the airport, saw I was their pilot and turned around to my boss and said, we're not getting on with her. And uh, he he uh, took they Can took some convincing it? yeah they took some convincing sure. um, from my boss to say no no you know it's it's it'll be fine um, thankfully they they continued and allowed me to take them to their destination and of course they uh, apologized and thanked me at the end but at the time you know as a brand new fresh pilot um, it really took me back I was like what do I do with this situation. And, and no I pressure think, on that landing. Yeah, exactly. Say, yeah. And and I think it took also the the courage or the um, authority of my boss to stand up for me as well, which was really nice. Because if I didn't have him to um, encourage in me in that situation, it probably wouldn't have happened. And maybe I, who knows? I might have given up right then. Yep. And any other challenges along the the, the way from the industry itself? Yeah. Um, look, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of jobs that I've missed out on because I'm a female and and weirdly enough some companies have openly said that that is the reason I don't hold that against them you know it's it, it is what it is and like I said even in corporate I can understand that being a female has its challenges for a small corporation but then you know we've just got to navigate that and try and see where we can apply ourselves the best that we can yeah there's a bit of a controversial topic that one um, and just from my experience you know I think, to be honest with you, I think girls make better pilots, you know, just in terms of procedures and precision and, and just looking at, just looking at handwriting in itself, you know, my sister's handwriting is so neat and perfect and pristine. Yeah. Whereas my, any my other te- boys te- tech logs are, my tech logs yeah. are definitely more legible than the guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, geez, well done, Caitlin, you've come so far and, and overcome so much to be where you are today. And I just, you know, applaud you. It's, it's an incredible journey you've got there. Yeah, yeah, thanks, guys. Um, and, you know, it's about enjoying that journey too. You know, nothing went exactly to plan, not that I knew exactly what the plan was at the time, but you've got to enjoy every little bit of 
experience that you can get and uh, not not always think, oh, I need to be here, I need to be there. Just enjoy the ride and um, take note of where you're at at the time. That's great advice and, and exactly along the lines of what we are trying to get out there is not to rush that journey, to enjoy every step along the way and to make the best of the situations you find yourselves in. And uh, you certainly are an illustration of that. So thanks for that. Caitlin, where to from here? Do you know what? I feel like, um, you know, especially from the earlier days, what my end goal was, I feel like I've reached it. I'm on the plane that I always imagined. And obviously that's not the end of the journeys for me. But at the moment, I'm just going to let it happen organically. I would love to stay on this aircraft for as long as possible, maybe move on with the future of aircraft. You know, corporate might be one of those sectors that first sees the flight of the next supersonic jet. Um, I, I want to be along for the ride with that. Awesome. Well, that's, uh, that's great ambition and uh, in, insight there. And hopefully we do see that in the near future. But yeah, Rhett, from you, anything else for Caitlin? I think this has been a, an incredible conversation and I'm looking forward to, uh, to hearing it again. Yeah, absolutely, Paul. I mean, there's nothing else I can add here. And you've really added a lot of value there and insights for, for everyone out there. And yeah, really excited to, to put it out there. Thanks, Caitlin. It's, it's been great. No, thank you guys. And uh, all the best to being mentors for all your listeners out there as well. Thanks so much. And really cool to, to chat to you again. And I hope we don't lose contact again. Uh, let's stay in touch. Yeah. And if any of your listeners, you know, maybe anyone thinking of relocating to Australia or needed some advice or wanted some more information or me to expand on anything that we've mentioned, maybe Rhett, if you wanted to add my email down there in the comments, they're welcome to get in touch with me. That'd be awesome. Thanks so much, Caitlin. We'll definitely do that. Yeah. An opportunity to pay it forward. Exactly. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much, Caitlin. Take care. Cheers. Great to chat with you again. Awesome. Have a good evening. You've been listening to Startup to Shutdown, the podcast with Rhett and Paul. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or iono.fm. And as our valued listening community, be so kind as to provide us with some feedback by leaving a review, rating it, or by sending an email to our address in the show notes. We rely on your engagement to provide you with the best value and entertainment possible. Keep the blue side up and stay the course. Until next time, bye-bye.